This week on Trek, Mary Kill. Gods, galaxies, death. Next. Captain's log, star date 1312.4. The next mission of the Enterprise takes us into an unknown force field, which affects the destiny of my closest friend. I understand you least of all. Gary told me that you've been friends since he joined the service, that you asked for him aboard your first command. It is my duty, whether pleasant or unpleasant, to listen to the reports, observations, even speculations on any subject that might affect the safety of this vessel. It's like a man who has been blind all of his life, suddenly being given sight. Sometimes I feel there's nothing I couldn't do in time. Some people think that makes me a monster, don't they, Jim? What would you do in my place? Kill me. Trek, Mary, kill. Okay, welcome to Trek, Mary, kill. It's Brian. I'm Kristen. And today we're talking about where no man has gone before. It's the second pilot for Star Trek, the original series. It's one of the rare times in TV history that has ever happened where network executives looked at a pilot, said, well, it kind of sucked, but we kind of liked it too. So let's just do it again, but with some changes. They lost uh, Jeremy Hunter as Captain Pike or Jeffrey Hunter as Pike. And uh, they decided, let's do, let's get someone else in here. And they got William Shatner and they they didn't uh, just cast him as Captain Pike. He became Captain Kirk with his middle initial in flux. If you <laughs> watch the episode, <laughs> it aired on September 22nd, 1966. It's technically the third aired episode. And originally I thought it was because the VFX weren't complete in time. But actually, the original reason was NBC thought uh, it's too thinky. Mm-hmm. So- <laughs> I mean, it is very ambitious for a pilot. Yes. I also think it's it's if you're teaching pilot writing, I mean, it's it's a very old sample from you know the 60s, but it still does a lot of stuff that you would want to see in a pilot made today. Uh, so it at the end of the day, I think there's it, it works as a piece of television too. quick synopsis, though. The Enterprise is on a mission led by Captain Kirk, and they are tasked with probing the edge of the galaxy and seeing what's beyond the galactic barrier. And on their way, they get a distress call from the SS Valiant, which had gone missing 200 years earlier, which creates a lot of weird time problems <laughs> for Star Trek history. And they discover that the ship was in distress, thought lost. They find its buoy, its distress buoy with all of its records. And they find that they encountered at the edge of the galaxy a, a magnetic storm that caused irreparable damage to the ship and also caused uh, some of the crew to go crazy and start killing each other. And the captain ordered his ship's own self-destruction. So with the mystery of the Valiant solved, they push ahead with their original mission. And then the Enterprise encounters the magnetic storm and they get their ass kicked. And Mm -hmm. uh, as they're limping back, we find out two of the crew members, two of the main cast members that were shocked, uh, Lieutenant Gary Mitchell, Captain Kirk's friend, and Dr. Elizabeth Daner, who had just been transferred over and is the ship's psychiatrist. They're both shocked uh, by this magnetic storm. And because they have these high esper ratings, extrasensory perception abilities, <laughs> whatever life force was in that shock that they received from the man- magnetic field slowly starts taking over their bodies, mainly Gary Mitchell's, and gives him the powers of a god. And he starts seeing the rest of the crew as an impediment to him ruling the galaxy. And it's up to Captain Kirk to stop him. Couple of casting notes. Shatner again, not a recast, new character. Mm-hmm. But I think this episode sticks in a lot of people's minds, not for really what it's about, but because Sally Kellerman's in it. Yeah. <laughs> She's Dr. Daner, and you've got Gary Lockwood from freaking 2001. I mean, freaking MASH, uh, Hot Lips Hulahan for Sally Kellerman. And then you've got Gary Lockwood from 2001 in it as Gary Mitchell. That really stands out in my mind. That's certainly what I remember from this episode. Yeah. <laughs> and a lot of other weird uh, casting things going on. This this episode sticks out in a lot of ways. First, it, as an episode of Star Trek, it really does establish what Star Trek's about. But versus, say, The Cage, it uh, I would say, actually, this episode sets up what they do later because 
they really cleared the deck from all the unmemorable characters, except for the ones scripted to die, because <laughs> <laughs> we've got we've got Scott, we've got yeah. Sulu. Uh, Sulu, ha- Sulu has like one line, maybe two. Yeah, and uh, and and Scott's just kind of there, and and it's a weird because it is and it isn't Star Trek and in, in that we know, like it's clearly is, but it's, it's still them trying to figure it out. So I thought that was interesting. Uh, you know, rest in peace, Lee Kelso though. Yeah. Good. Good. Yeah. He gave a spirited performance. Yeah. <laughs> kind R. of a, e. kind of a good riddance, Dr. Piper. He didn't really make an impression there. So, <laughs> <laughs> so it was good that we got Dr. McCoy. Uh, I have a story about this episode though, how I first saw it. And okay, not, not please tell. tell. <laughs> the, this, uh, the reason why I will probably never forget this episode is because it's the first and only VHS I purchased as a, that was a bootleg. <laughs> and I bought it at the first and only Star Trek convention I've ever attended. What was the quality of the bootleg? Do you remember? I don't recall like there the being... video and audio quality? I don't remember there being qualms with it. To be honest, it didn't really stand out well, to me. Was, what year in the 1990s? Yeah. And also it wasn't I wasn't watching it through an antenna. So there was no fuzz. So, mm. so, <laughs> so like an improvement, the, I guess. So it was a slight improvement, but it was odd hearing different sound effects for certain things. Uh, the, the And also the fonts were different, which they are. If you watch, I think, the remastered edition, they're still the original fonts. But also one thing that sticks in my mind rewatching it was that the intro was different because they didn't have the formal space, the final frontier. So it was yeah. Captain Kirk g- going on about like space law. Yeah. <laughs> and, and so <laughs> go ahead. No. It, and also it seemed the one I watched, it seemed like some of the graphics have been replaced or some yes. of the special effects. Right. Right. Yes. And- way too good. <laughs> <laughs> for 1966 well they certainly for the remaster they they redid that one too but watching even watching the bootleg they were still in the you know those were the first vfx that they vfx those are the first effects they did for uh for star trek so even to my i think i was 11 by then maybe 12 watching it it still looked rough, you know, even for oh, okay. what I knew the original series was because these were like literally the first shots of the enterprise. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it came in a yellow box. Those, uh, <laughs> do you remember the ones that would, you like open like a book, they clip open the plastic. Um, oh, I don't think I do. And it had, I, this is my modern. Like the padded ones, like the Disney ones. So it would open like a Disney one, but it wasn't as puffy. So it was just oh. kind of like one of those black plastic cases and they slipped in some art, which was yellow. Oh, and but it was a yellow case. Or the, the sorry, the case was black. The, oh. the what they used was yellow. Okay, so you're paper. just talking about like the traditional yeah, like yeah, yeah, yeah. bootleg or like the um, yeah, yeah. You know, there we go. That's non-blockbuster um, video store would have like when That's they were right. videos, those types. Yes. And I would imagine it was very good quality because they would have probably put, you know, SP as the recording. As the recording speed, uh, that's if anyone doesn't know, there's like standard play and extended play for your VHS tapes. And I think if you used EP, you could record up to six hours on a tape. Yeah. So th- that was good for if you needed to get multiple episodes. So I think it was it was just the one episode. Uh, and, and it was it was interesting. I think I remember watching it going, this is interesting. It almost didn't. F- it almost felt like it was a bootleg episode of the show. You know what I mean? Like it wasn't yeah. quite Star Trek, but it, it was in fact the pilot. Um, so that's my memory of it. Do you remember how much you paid for this? I'm going to say it was 20 bucks. That's a lot, I feel. But I think that was still like the going price. It was $19.90. Yeah, $19.90. But I think that was still the going price for a new tape. You know what? Now that I'm yeah. saying it, I think it might have been closer to 30 bucks. But I also recall that I didn't, that was maybe the only thing I got at the convention. Mm-hmm. So that, that was my, like you get thing. one thing and this is the thing you wanted. Yeah. Cause I think I was choosing, by the way, my dad uh, made me the costume I was wearing. It looked really bad, but it was a next generation <laughs> one. It was a next generation one, but I was attracted to all the original series stuff. Um, and so I got this bootleg, but it was the other thing I had wanted was a flip open communicator that when you flipped oh. it open, it, it lit up and it made the sound. 
and I that had to be more than thirty bucks. No, right? that was like a hundred and thirty. Yeah. Bucks. So it's like it was choosing between this and that and that, and I, I, I just got the. Yeah, I yeah, I, my parents would not have bought me the hundred thirty dollar flip thing, and like my mom likes Star Trek. She'd been like, absolutely not. Yeah, no, it's a good call. This is gonna break tomorrow. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> I just remember it. It felt like the real thing, like the genuine article. So, uh, and so now that's my little detour. Hopefully, we'll do something like that for every episode. How we first came upon it, if there's any sort of special story or anything like mm-hmm. that. So, not putting you on the spot, by the way. <laughs> okay. <laughs> uh, okay, but did you have any stray thoughts or about the episode that that doesn't fall into our grading system? So for me, um, and this is more of the series in general, was that, um, well, number one, like, are the are these the original graphics? But we already covered that. But number two, this show is as horny or hornier than I remember. <laughs> like, I was like, there's no way I actually read it that as that horny. It is, <laughs> if not more so. And this is the pilot, or you know, the aired pilot. I, I that actually surprised me a little bit because I thought there's no way I'm actually like remembering that because that's like the stereotype of the original series of it just being like William Shatner banging aliens the whole time although that doesn't happen here but it's very horny oh um mine this is pretty bad but remember that meme that's been going around where it's like the magic wands is like the warp drives on the enterprise i couldn't stop seeing that the whole episode when every time they show the the updated (laughs) enterprise i feel that's really bad and we probably should just take it out but i could not i couldn't unsee it (laughs) <laughs> the uh, image she's referring to is uh, <laughs> I'll share it is an image of the Enterprise's nacelles replaced <laughs> with magic wands vibrators yes <laughs> marital aids it, it fits in pretty nicely it um, is perfect it's I cannot unsee it my comment was the Enterprise V but I'm sure there's a better <laughs> joke there anyway I, I also wanted to point this out. We're going to try to pull, you know, snippets from, you know, the ephemera, the, the facts, the all the stuff that's been written about Star Trek over the years. This is a little lengthy one, but it's important for this episode because we're doing the first episode of the original series. Granted, it's not the first one that aired, but this was the first one that was technically shown, just not broadcast. And that's because a, a print of the pre-broadcast version of this episode was taken by Gene Roddenberry to the annual World Science Fiction Convention in Cleveland, Ohio. And he presented it to um, everyone there is, that was there. It was 500 people. Uh, but someone wrote in that's the Star Trek. Good, that's a good turnout for a Cleveland science fiction convention pre-Star Trek. And apparently this was the second showing to the public because Harlan Ellison showed it at basically Comic-Con. Uh, it was called the San Diego Western Con 19 just a couple of days earlier. And so this is from Alan Asherman, author of the Star Trek compendium. He was among the audience at the Roddenberry screening. And he recalled, this is the quote I wanted to read. There must've been 500 people in that audience. When the enterprise hit the galactic barrier, a thousand eyes opened wide, 500 respiratory rates accelerated with what wonderful pleasure that comes over lovers of all things. When they see their favorite subject being treated well, if the, if he, Roddenberry, could have read our minds at any moment during the screening. He would have been the happiest producer in the world. Here was a future it did not hurt to imagine. Here was a constructive tomorrow for mankind, emphasizing exploration and expansion. This was a science fiction tele- television series we all wanted to see. We were extremely impressed. And there's more, but that's the main snippet I want yeah. to from it. How many women do you think were in that audience? <laughs> if it's more than 10%. I would be surprised that don't that weren't there to work. Like, I don't mean like the ushers just curious to know. And my guess is very few. I couldn't say, I couldn't say I, I was going to, I the part that responds to my heart is the idea of here is a future. It did not hurt to imagine. I I really like that. That's why, I mean, I think, I mean, I don't want to speak for you. That's why I love star Trek though. Yeah. Um, But the other part I wanted to pull out is that, (laughs) <laughs> there is sort of a religious sentiment to this particular oh. passage. Yeah. <laughs> and, and then that's where the comedy comes in because I'm pretty sure I remember a story of Gene Roddenberry and L. Ron Hubbard, at least if not being friends, being contemporaries and Roddenberry being a little pissed that he didn't think to turn Star Trek into a religion. 
when uh, L. Ron Hubbard did Dianetics. That's what I kind of recall. And I have to admit, as being an obsessive devotee of Star Trek, yeah, I can definitely see the religious parallels and the crossover there. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> so that passage jumped out to Although me. I'm glad he didn't turn it into an actual organized religion, a la Scientology. I'm with you on that. But I also think it was just important to pull that out for the first episode of the <laughs> original series. wild, by the way. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Which sets it, you know, sets the stage for everything. Um, Any regrets, Gene? Well, <laughs> Ronnie had a good idea and I didn't, yeah. <laughs> I didn't beat him to it. For me, you know, obviously the original series is not, especially probably people our age, it's not their favorite show of the Star Trek shows. I, I would venture to guess fewer people are just watching it over the years now. It's just not, it's not getting a new audience. It's so old, all that, but it really, the concepts and sort of the, the mode of it, like has really all the future iterations really just are built on this. And this is why I was saying in our initial episode, like Star Trek is essentially its own genre and it really does start here. It's not like they have to figure it out. They have to figure out sort of the um, intricacies or the, uh, you know, the idiosyncrasies of it. But, you know, this episode is about them punching God in the mouth. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and that's Literally. Seems, yeah, that seems like a very big uh, point for at least Gene Roddenberry's Star Trek. Uh, one thing I want to say is it's not a it's not a grade or a category or anything like that. But I did want to say, like, basically every Star Trek episode can be boiled down to these broad concepts of, you know, what what's the problem? Is it a God problem, a tech problem, a time problem, a space problem, or a people problem? Um, and I'm sure that's basically what most genre is, but rarely do I think God comes into it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, a handful of times. Yeah. Or a, not like a God or God-like creature or being. And I think sometimes it even pulls that down from, from sort of an omnipotent force into religion like organized religion, usually mm-hmm. when I see it in drama. Anything else you want to add? Otherwise, let's let's move no, on. Let's get into it. Here. Let's get into it. OK, and let's start off with great scenes. Um, you know, I love space chess. They're in. I don't know. Whatever. It's basically a bar, right? The chess so, room. Yeah. And they're playing chess. And then there's like, yeah. And like, it's not real chess. It's like on different levels. It's, and just, it's just 3D like, chess. Yeah, of course. Yeah. Of course. <laughs> of course. But and then like Kirk calls a woman Jones, but she's like, my name is Smith and then gives her a knowing look. And I'm like, uh-huh. uh-huh. <laughs> yeah. And yeah. so like it, you get little, a little taste of things to come in um, the rest of the series. Yeah. I, the chess scene to me was such a great encapsulation of their, of Kirk's relationship with Spock, but also he hits the ground running as Captain Kirk. Yeah. Right, right away we get it. He's he's concerned about the ship and the mission. And then he's kind of also he's he's holding Spock off with his free hand. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and and he's concerned about something else. I, I love how he throws it back, you know, Spock saying, Oh, one of your earth emotions, irritation. And Kirk does the chest move and he says, Are you sure you don't know what irritation is? And it just you get Captain Kirk all right away right up front um and yeah the 3d chess was a nice wrinkle as well and and spock being like he should have played this and he didn't someone else yes was it mitchell going like well yeah it's obviously like (laughs) yeah and they i think there was a lot of uh, there's a a good energy between the two of them but then yes later right after that in the turbo lift when we then mitchell comes in there's like a really good Kirk gives that, you know, that thumb gesture across the throat when (laughs) Spock steps forward in disappointment. I love that. That was a great opening scene. Uh, I also, next one I have is in sickbay after Mitchell's been shocked after they've Mm -hmm. gotten out of the barrier. And it's, it's a long scene and it has a lot of beats and it starts off. I mean, the whole time Kirk's being concerned for his friend, his best friend. Mm-hmm. And, but it also goes through, we get a history about the two of them. Yeah. We get kind of the idea that, that Mitchell is a, is a piece of shit. Oh my God. He's <laughs> such a piece of shit. <laughs> I think we can just say it. Gary Mitchell is a piece of shit. He, even before, <laughs> yeah. as it turns out, just a bad guy all around. Yeah. You know what? We, we jumped over the scene that really establishes it uh, because 
but we'll we'll go back to that in a yeah, minute. I have it. I have it in my uh, my best lines. <laughs> we're probably gonna yeah. yeah we're gonna spend a lot of time I think on the of its time grade there. <laughs> but in you know in this scene we established their friendship. We established something that that is because this episode is not. It is and it isn't canon because there's just a lot of stuff they hadn't figured out. Yeah. Like they're saying like they met at Starfleet and that Kirk was like teaching a class or something. Is that what I like? I could kind of believe it. Lieutenant Kirk, but also Kirk in later in the original series was established to have been like the youngest captain, which would Mm -hmm. almost preclude him having a rotation teaching. Being a tenured professor. Yeah. Yeah. Or even an associate just, you know, picking up a semester as part of his duty just (laughs) doesn't seem. Yeah, exactly. But I do think the idea that he was a stack of book with legs is something that sticks in your mind enough. And you see it enough when this with his command thinking and decisions that it's kind of stuck. But it's also for the people that just want to think of Kirk as a hoe who bangs people, which Mm -hmm. I don't like. But, you know, this episode... invites you to kind of take it or leave it in a way with a lot of stuff. Vulcan or Spock saying that he had basically ancestral human blood when that gets changed. Yeah. The idea that the Valiant crossed over to the edge of the galaxy 200 years before the Enterprise doesn't work. You know, just a lot of little details Mm -hmm. like that. Uh, But just in terms of character, we've got this idea that, you know, Mitchell basically observed Kirk as a nerd and then took a woman aside, probably a lab, like an assistant that thought he was cute. And he was like, well, if you want him and you want to marry him or whatever, here's all the buttons you have to press. He says he outlined her entire campaign. So- yeah. Like basically catfished him. <laughs> yeah. And and then Kirk said, yeah, that's exactly what it would be. <laughs> and to what end? Yeah. And Kirk said, I almost married her. Right. Well, yeah. you know, now that I have watched this episode multiple times over the last several days, I don't know how intentional it was, but Sam Peoples is probably, I think he was a science fiction writer. You know, a lot of the people writing early Star Trek, they were, you know, writers. They weren't just TV writers. But you could certainly pull from that whole exchange this idea that this idea that Mitchell likes playing God. Yeah, yeah, that like he enjoys playing with people as if they are pawns if it's like a game and there's a line later that someone's like well he's gonna get bored with us yeah or tired of us and when he does and what's he gonna do and so i just really like the scene because it's it seems like it is two friends not i mean they're not necessarily being totally honest i don't feel like they're probing each other either but it's just kind of two friends talking and then over the course of that one of them realizing uh something's going on here <laughs> yeah and then like very quickly spock of course is like we should just kill this guy and i would have killed that motherfucker right then and there when he was like oh yeah i had that whole relationship i orchestrated it the girl you almost married that was me <laughs> that's what you killed <laughs> yeah i mean like it wouldn't it would no longer be a question in my mind i'd be like uh-huh mm-hmm. my last point on the scene and why i think it's a great scene is the best pilots even today they have a straightforward <laughs> plot, like a dumb, simple plot. A lot of the times you'd be like, it's someone's first day. You know what I mean? <laughs> like, they or, shot a water. Yeah. yeah it, and uh, and they're st- stupid simple. And they also have a straightforward emotional journey. Well, they stay at the job. <laughs> that kind mm-hmm. of thing. And, and here I think in this scene, those two elements converge perfectly. The ship is in trouble, but the plot is about dealing with this deification of a crew member mm-hmm. uh, and the emotional arc is Kirk dealing with that crew member being his best friend. It's well acted. I thought both of them did a great yeah. job. Uh, one of the things about it being in HD now is all the close-ups. You really are just staring at actors faces. So mm-hmm. you get to pay attention. And if you're watching on a giant TV, you know, which I, of course I always am. So you get to see all the the little turns and ticks and all that that they're attempting to convey and or that's way too big because they're playing to a TV. And it, it's fun to do that sometimes. And for whatever reason, in the in this 1966 sci-fi TV pilot, I think it really, really punched, really landed well here. Mm-hmm. I have three other scenes, but I, I want to step aside and see if you have any other chronological after that. Um, no, they're not chronological. And I think I'll yeah. probably get to the some of this later but basically just when kirk kind of realizes that things haven't gone well when they show up to what was like the mining planet or whatever the automated mining planet delta vega 
Yeah, he has to tell, he tells Kelso that blow this whole fucking place up if Gary gets loose, basically. And like finally realizing, oops, I probably should have listened to Spock on this one. Yeah, we missed our window. <laughs> I like that. Yeah, I think once they get down to the planet, I, I don't think that the episode necessarily pops with as many great scenes, but there are great moments like that for sure. Mm-hmm. I think. Uh, be- only because when they get him down to the planet, they're just basically putting him in the brig and he's just talking, you know, that I'm going to do this to you. I'm going to do that to you. And <laughs> and it, the ter- you have to kind of wait a little bit for Daner to to turn and, and join him. But before that, there's, um well, we, by going to that moment, I, I there are two scenes I had before that. I think the Mitchell and Daner scene in sickbay is good uh, until Kelso comes in. Um, <laughs> he's like oh boy what did i walk in on Ooh. yeah exactly and he it's just a bad perform- it's just not a it doesn't fit with the performance <laughs> it doesn't. yeah i'm yeah, not sure I mean, like I, I i believe i actually audibly laughed at that it was so like jarring yeah. like whoa whoa and she's Sorry, yeah and this scene has her testing his memory and that's one of the most passionate love sonnets of the past 200 years now for some reason even though i just watched it i can't remember is that before or after he flatlines for her oh i don't know if it's before or after yeah. but anyway so there's there's beats in the scene things that happen and he does i think he opens it with an apology too they're obviously attracted it's interesting that she becomes attracted to him that like the turn of the acting is that she's now oh because she has to be but i just mm-hmm. thought between the two of them it was a well-acted scene maybe all the particulars of it and she's also like great. very insistent that this is not dangerous yes that was the like, other there's thing. no way i'm a psychologist <laughs> and i know esp is not dangerous it can't possibly be uh that was gonna that's that part of it's gonna slip into my of its time quality <laughs> only because they both say that she's being hysterical and then not like not concerned enough. It's bizarre. <laughs> and it's, it's no wonder people in the, it's no wonder gaslighting is really a thing. It's, yeah. This is like culturally institutionalized. Like she doesn't, she's bouncing back and forth in their minds, which is garbage. I still thought it was a good scene. The other scene that, that led to what you pointed out. I think the Spock and Kirk scene in the briefing room after, after everyone leaves is fantastic. Mm-hmm. The only thing that's missing because they hadn't quite, uh, you know, smoothed out all the acting and all that is, or, or the characterizations is Spock doesn't say it's the only logical solution. He does say that he only relies on logic for his decisions. Yeah. That was the only thing to me that kind of stood out as that would have been there in episode four, you know, if this mm-hmm. had been episode four, but other than that, he, you know, Spock and Kirk saying like, can't you feel for a minute? And then Spock saying, you know, we've got these two choices. We can try to strand him, but you're probably going to have to kill him. And then the part that really defines Shatner as Kirk or just Captain Kirk, the character, Kirk doesn't then just take a, a beat or two to think about it. As soon as he hits that mark, he immediately says set course for Delta Vega. Like yeah. he makes a decision in the moment. Um, and you can see he's like, man, I don't want to do either of those things, but I got to do something. Yeah. And uh, so it was good. I think it really set their dynamic. Okay, so then after they get to the planet, and the do you have uh, do you have one more scene? Oh, there's only a no. couple more scenes. Okay. Oh, you didn't like the showdown. Well, I put that that's I, under a different category. Oh, I I thought it was a great <laughs> scene because it was what I said. It was it was Star Trek just distilled to its purest form: punching mm-hmm. God in the mouth. Yeah. <laughs> so, Oh, I enjoyed that scene thoroughly. I, yeah, I put that under best Trek tropes. Uh, there being a fist fight at the end. Yeah, and and but for this karate one, karate chops. This one also has the other sub trope, but also this is all the first time they're doing it. Where Kirk's after this is after Daner's joined Mitchell and her esper powers. I guess because she's a woman, or you know, oh, they you know what they took it. They took some time. You just had to read what was on the screen. Or maybe she even mentions it that her that Mitchell's Esper ratings were actually higher than hers. So that was how they were setting it up there. But yes, this is a pretty dense plot in a lot of ways or pilot. But I like the idea, you know, he's showing her we can remake this world and blah, blah, blah. And then then he's like, go to Kirk, go and see him and you'll see how small he really is. And none of this matters. And Mm -hmm. then then Kirk tries to appeal to her humanity. He says, be a psychiatrist for one minute more. What's your prognosis for someone like 
for someone like Gary Mitchell and then uses that later in the fight where he's like, do you think he's going to share being a God with you? Like how (laughs) as he's getting his ass kicked, he's still like looking (laughs) to him going like, do you see this is going to be you? And I think that's pretty classic Star Trek appealing to someone's humanity. I also think it's the one idea. It is the one big idea that strands Star Trek, the entire concept in the late 20th century because I don't think Star Trek is capable of dealing with the concept of what if someone doesn't have a base humanity to appeal to? Yeah. And I think that's tough. I think antagonism, you know, having your villains be more antagonistic or having their own point of view or reasons for doing something is kind of baked, born of the idea that people have thought things through to some degree or have their Mm -hmm. own logic or reasoning for doing things. But I don't know. The world I live in seems like uh, people don't think much more beyond I'm afraid. Yeah. And there's also just like plain evil people, too. Like, why is Gary Mitchell such an asshole? He's just like a born (laughs) asshole. (laughs) Yeah. And oh, that that kind of leads into why is Kirk then? Does that make Kirk a jerk, too? Because they're just two bros broing out. And I don't know. I could see that they were they were basically they probably got along and they were complimentary because maybe Kirk, maybe not the submissive one, but you know what I mean? Like he's not as, as jerky as Mitchell. So he's whatever. And they have good fun. But also I think once Mitchell saves his life on Deneb four, that Mm -hmm. kind of bonds them in a different, you know, Um, interesting that Deneb four is then also the episode, the plant that they're going to in encounter at Farpoint, uh, which we're doing later. Um, but something I had missed many times, but yeah, Deneb four. But I think, that, but to me, I was, cause I was trying to understand like, well, does it track? Does that mean Kirk does have this side to him? Cause I'm not a believer that Kirk's just a hoe and has no respect. I don't think for he's people. just a hoe. I think he enjoys, um, being, I, I think he enjoys adventure in all its forms. Yeah. I think I like that. I like that idea. And sometimes and explore, I think. And then exploration. In all its but forms. Gary Mitchell likes manipulating people. Yeah. He just like, he, yeah, like yeah. hedonist or something. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So that we talked about the great scenes. I think there are quite a lot for a pilot. Mm-hmm. Okay. Best Trek tropes. Um, you know what? We had a red alert immediately, which, you know, I love it. Um, we talked about last episode. I mean, this one, because it's the pilot, I feel like I'm, I'm giving it the best Trek trope because usually it does bother me, but because it's the pilot, I'm giving it a slide and you have to, I'm letting it slide and you have to like have it to like set it up as like this is what happens when bad things like this is how you know things have gotten bad also i think it's the only they only really use it that one time yeah it doesn't like come back yeah yeah it wasn't like yeah Yeah. it didn't lose its effectiveness we you know we found out what it was for but it was pretty immediate so i have evil gods but you said basically we is it should be evil gods or punching a god in the mouth or you know uh, reasoning to death (laughs) like they have all these sophisticated weapons but the end of it is fought as a fist fight with karate chops and you know pulling rocks onto somebody and i love it also in the scene where um right before they take him down to the planet when he shocks kirk and spock and sickbay Uh he starts sort of like bloviating so much because remember he can read people's minds he he literally just read what spock was thinking but then he gets up and starts speaking grand in this grand tone and, and Kirk just knocks him out. <laughs> Remember he punches him under the bed. He goes, I want him unconscious for a while. Yeah. <laughs> uh, oh, I put this in the wrong section. So, okay. <laughs> so you got, I put the negging of women. That's the worst Trek trope. So. Yeah. Can you uh, believe it? A yes, broad yeah. in the workplace. Let's put a pin in that for just a second. Cause I want to okay. find one other one. I, I just think uh, Spock or having the voice of reason that's purely logical in the way that you maybe don't want to hear. It's not a Trek trope, but the fact is that so many episodes, it's not strictly a Trek trope, but I don't know a lot of shows where the other point of view that is the one you don't want to think about is, is given equal weight. I think that's maybe Mm -hmm. it. And then the other best Trek trope is you already said this chess. Yeah. (laughs) To me, it stands out as being a great Trek trope because Star Trek embraces intelligence, intellect, and chess is, at least in the 60s, and even kind of now, 
you know, that's, it's high-minded. It's, it's your thinking person. You're, you're considering the options. And it's strategic. If you're playing chess, there's a lot of good things going on. So yeah, I'm terrible. By the way, I'm terrible at chess. I'm a dumb. Yeah, I'm, I'm pretty bad at it. And every time I would try to like, I knew, I know how to play. And so I've taught some people how to play and they just end up being so much better at it than me. Well, they made that battle chess computer game. And that was that was to me the only thing that got me to try to do chess because it was like Mortal Kombat but a chessboard. So if you every time you'd move and take a piece, they would actually like instead fight and kill each other. The one and then the <laughs> if you did the you know whatever depending on the move that you did, the winning piece went. So that was cool. <laughs> well, had I like actually known that you could study chess and there's like certain strategies and moves that you can do like tic tac toe, I probably would have been much better at it. Yeah, this is not an invitation for anyone to get me a 3D chess set. I don't want those. That's oh, uh, God, no. they're super expensive. And I, the although it would be fun to watch my cat jump on the different levels. So I don't, I don't want them. Okay. Oh. <laughs> Worst Trek tropes. Um, so I think the early show does this a little bit more than the later ones, but I, I understand why they do it, but they have like a full screen of like the bridge to the briefing room or to sick bay. But like the angle is kind of weird in that, like, why would you have like a, some kind of camera or monitor right there? Oh, oh, okay. I'm, I'm confusing two ideas. So, Oh, I see what you're saying. No, it's the same thing. Why is there cinematography for those shots? Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Why is the camera where it should just be like a wide shot of the whole room, right? Yes, exactly. They never figured that out. And then sometimes on view screen conversations in like the next generation, there's like a camera move that happens. I'm like, wait. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So yeah. And um, like, there's a part where um, uh, I mentioned this in another category, but it's okay. But like when when Mitchell's in the sick bay, he looks like directly at the camera. And like, he's supposed to. I know, but like, they're like monitoring him and he looks right at the camera. And they're like, and they're- oh boy, oh, we're caught. Like, <laughs> oh, he knows we're looking at him. Like, yeah, yeah, he knows. There's a camera right there. But why is it, why is it pointing at this person's bed? And like, that doesn't make any sense. Yeah, like you can't. Like if you're in sick bay, you don't get any privacy. You have to be monitored by the captain 24 hours a day. Like it doesn't make any sense. Or at least the camera could be near that water spigot. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Which that are, would yeah. something spotless. I love those cheesy like practical effects too, of, like the cup floating over, like like on Bewitched. Yeah, it reminds me of that quote about what is it the cool ranch doritos like a peasant child couldn't handle the flavor of a <laughs> <laughs> like 60s tv audiences how are they moving that cup yeah. that? Ooh. uh one of my worst trek tropes this is by the way i'm i'm kind of uh filibustering until we get to the sexism because it's going to smash us right into the most of its time quality but um that's just a little uh, procedural note there <laughs> so it's th- there are two examples but they're kind of uh one and then w- and then like a sub category of it and that is calling things that we know by their space version so he says Catharian <laughs> apples and you know there i am not a fan of like the the wombats of dominguez 2 or the rigelian bat i don't like when they i've never ever ever liked when star trek did that you know in deep space nine klingon coffee is not called klingon coffee it's called ractagino it just has a name and you're just supposed to know what it is and so kafarian apples okay what does that mean so to me it was it's like cheap exoticism or like yeah. cheap futurism just to make remind you that we're dealing with space and on that line they got away from this and that was probably a good call although it'd be funny to see it come back and for them to try to have slipped it in or find different ways to kind of do their own slang. But you know, when Gary Mitchell refers to a woman that was like a firebrand, because Kirk says, I haven't been worried about you since that woman on one planet. And and Mitchell chuckles and goes, yeah, she was a Nova that one. And it's like, what uh, the fuck does that mean? (laughs) I didn't just pay five cents for a science fiction reader. Okay. So, (laughs) so it's not something they do. They actually really did. I don't think after the, 
even like the first five or 10 episodes of the original series where that stuff would slip in there. And definitely next generation, Rick Berman was very clear on like, this should just be like basic language that doesn't really age. Yeah. Uh, I guess, I guess when it's like, when it's a term, we know, I think that's what it is when it's a term, we know with sort of a, a modification that we recognize, then it doesn't seem futuristic. It just seems cheap. And so it just bothers me. Yeah. Uh, And then, yeah, should we get into it now? Let's just yes. get into it. Okay. I, I don't think it's any surprise that 1966, a TV show is going to have some sexism in it. And I don't think Star Trek, uh, that if you're thinking about Star Trek, that sexism is is low on the list. I think it's pretty high on the list of things you'll that immediately jumps to mind about it. Mm-hmm. And my God, <laughs> this this episode in particular is nasty. It's nasty. Yeah. So go go ahead. <laughs> okay, yeah, there's a line in there that says, with almost a hundred women on board, um, like how many people are on board? Like well, in the original run, it's like 435, 450 yeah. people. Yeah. So, so a quarter of the crew is what they're ooh. saying. <laughs> yeah, it, it's just like stuff like that. And then like it's just like everyone, like there's always just a comment about, can you believe it? We got women in the workplace here. Then like someone grabs a woman's hand because like the bridge starts blowing up. Like oh it's okay, dear. So Gary Mitchell is navigating the ship. <laughs> yeah, uh, he's, yeah, and something. he's he's the navigator now. Yeah. He's not the helmsman, so he's not like actually piloting. He's but he's doing a lot of other things besides navigation. They're in a crisis. The ship is 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 being mangled by this, getting its ass kicked by this magnetic storm. They need to get out of it. And but like shit is blowing yeah. up on the bridge. And with Sports one hand, fine. he's manning his station. The other one, he's he's manhandling. He's comforting a, a lady. Yeoman Smith, yes. <laughs> and this is after this is this this is after when he meets Elizabeth Daner, who introduces herself as a psychiatrist who's studying the reactions, uh, crew reactions to stress. It's just like kind of a. Of course, what else is she going to do? So that's kind of a. A lady doctor. Yeah, a lady doctor. And he, she explains what she's doing. And then she says, I would also be interested if we have the records of knowing how the Valiant crew handled their stressful situation, which is, again, kind of an odd thing to say because we just heard that they all killed themselves. But anyway, <laughs> but Mitchell's response to hearing what she does is he says, he says, uh, improving the breeding stock, are you? Yeah, it's gross. <laughs> it's it's like whoa, and then she, but then and then she goes, which she has to like drop her professionalism, I guess, to respond is, you know, I hear that's what you do, including the line, and then that's it. And then she kind of walks away, and then he turns, so he's been bested, so his ego's been hurt, so he turns to Kelso and he calls her a walking freezer unit, which gets a reaction on the rest of the bridge, uh, Doctor um, Piper, and uh, even to. Uh, Scotty and Sulu, they all like make faces. Piper, of course, <laughs> looks at her and he's like, ha ha. But then Scott behind him, this is probably why they kept Scotty. Scotty's like, that was not right. That was <laughs> Gary Mitchell's a piece of shit. I hope he dies. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and Sulu's like, I'm just happy to be here, but that was not right. That was not right. Yeah. Anyway. I'm going to dig a little deeper here with two things. They're both asking Dana's opinion she gives it and they say that's not good enough essentially mm-hmm. <laughs> she and then she's kind of written away where she's like but he's not that dangerous it's like she just has to keep saying that and shaking her hair <laughs> it's it's sort oh, of yeah it's it's kind of we've forgotten what she's supposed to be doing here which is studying you know what i mean she's not on yeah. Her character she's not setting the stress that's why i like that scene in sick bay between the two of them because then i'm like i can actually buy that she's examining him that mm-hmm. actually makes sense but when she's talking to kirk and spock even spock's giving it to her this yeah a character they hadn't figured out yet obviously yeah but yeah so like what she's saying like makes sense if you have never seen star trek though <laughs> like or science fiction or whatever like it's like yeah of course it's just people who are like little, like, yeah, in real life, you can't become a god from this. Right. Or just sort of if she just wasn't paying attention when Spock was saying what was happening on the Valiant. Mm-hmm. <laughs> wow. Yeah. She's like, oh, they all killed themselves because of Esper craziness. Ah, I'm sure that's not related to our situation. <laughs> whatsoever. <laughs> no, not at all. Nothing at all. <laughs> Coincidence. Uh, 
And I think there's a line that says women professionals do tend to overcompensate. I think she says that. Oh, I don't remember. Okay. Well, but yeah, I remember someone saying that. I'm like, mm. that's more of a, of its time quality that I had under. So I just want to get to the, uh, well, that's what we're in right now, but I want to get to the, the most disgusting. This is by far, this is, this is what our show does. That's a little bit different from the other shows. We are going to jump back and forth when it suits us to talking about it from sort of the production element of it because can't help it. And it, and whether people want to believe it or not, it can very much influence what you see on the screen. But that casting of that yeoman, yeoman Smith. So that is not a recast. It's like the other things. It's a new character because in the cage, there was a yeoman too. And it was a redhead and they very much sexualize her when, but she has lines. So <laughs> this one, she doesn't have lines. She, I don't think she has a line. Oh, she has that one line where Just, she says yeah, Smith. Like, it's Smith. Yeah. Okay. So Andrea Drum replaced Laurel Goodwin in the role of captain's yeoman. According to Herb Solo and Bob Justman, Herb, Herb Solo, I think, was the network executive and J- Bob Justman, Robert Justman, is the producer. He was the, the day-to-day producer. Her role, role was actually, quote, a non-part, and Roddenberry claimed he cast her so he could score with her. This is a quote, yeah. score with her. They added it was not just a, quote, non-part, but a, quote, non-score as well. Drom didn't return to the series oh. and re- was replaced by Grace Lee Whitney as Yeoman Rand. And what happened to Grace Lee Whitney is that's its own podcast and it's disgusting and it's terrible. Oh God, uh, I don't know. Yeah, do I yeah, want to know? Not, not by anyone on the cast, but, oh. the, but it, it's just gross. So gross sexual, it, it's, it's, you can't detach it once you know the history and, and it's, you know, in, in 50 years, they're going to be looking back at the things we're doing now and like, oh, podcasting. Well, yeah. That's so, you know, <laughs> disgusting, you know, but just we can look at it now and say it was, you know, it was disgusting for its time. And I'm going to give you the clue because when Gary Mitchell makes a sexist comment on the bridge, people react. Some people react like that's a sexist comment. Mm-hmm. So they knew it wasn't like, oh, that was just the time. It was just that there was more of an, uh, an insistence of putting up with it that was more accepted. I think that insistence still survives to this day, right? But yeah. There's less tolerance for people insisting, I guess. Um, but that was gross. We had to point it out. Most of its time with a original episode of Star Trek is probably going to involve sexism. Well, yeah. <laughs> um, I do have some things that are not sexism. Okay. Sexism, okay. <laughs> shockingly. Um, so I put polyester knitwear. Everyone's wearing polyester knitwear as their uniform. So it's, um, if you're unfamiliar... It is essentially like a knit sweater made of synthetic fabric. Yeah, no, that it's just something you would not um, wear today because it would feel you'd be under those lights. You'd probably feel like you were dying. Um, I wonder if stages were as cold as they are now. But the lights were so much stronger. You're 100 percent right. I'm saying like the, the lights were even stronger. So were the stages. Cold yeah. <laughs> I think it was just the same thing where like they turn they crank up the air conditioning then when they start to um shoot they turn it off mm. right before they shoot. Yeah, but those um, lights absolutely would just Yeah, like them. now you don't need as crazy like the lighting on a television set. I guess maybe there's some three camera sitcoms with a live, live audience that have that crazy lighting, but most of it is nothing quite as extreme as was on those early shows. There's also a painted styrofoam cup when a <laughs> When Gary Mitchell's able to grab the cup and send it across the room, it's painted. <laughs> and I don't, and that's just like, why? Okay. I have, now that you mentioned it, I have a thought and maybe it's a dumb thought. Were paper cups in like in a lot of use then, or was it largely styrofoam? No, there was paper cups, but styrofoam okay. was considered like, uh, you know, like because it insulated so you can keep your drink colder. And we so didn't care about the earth as much. Not that we care that much about it now, but I'm sure that was lead paint as well. So. Oh, well, yeah. I was wondering like how, how they, um, like what kind of paint they must've used to keep it on there. It probably was just a paint on a paper cup because what else are they going to use? They're not going to go to the printing shop and just print it. No, they, yeah, no, it, they, they yeah. absolutely. So they probably just had there. to paint it. Yeah. Um, okay. Yeah. Painted cup. The, that spigot was certainly the water spigot, yeah. certainly a hundred percent of that time. <laughs> the dial is like a glass water cooler or something. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> with those cone cups. 
the uh, phaser rifle. Oh yeah, the phaser rifle. Just the con- the conception of what a phaser rifle, uh, a futuristic laser-looking rifle would look like, would definitely be that. Yeah, those those are good ones. Now it's time for the line must be drawn here. Great lines. <laughs> We've already talked about it, but um, I almost married her. Um, <laughs> like Kirk is genuinely like genuinely like, wait, what? Her? And you can like see the I, reaction. Yeah, a non-marrying man <laughs> almost married her. You, you nearly met. Uh, don't you? Oh, the, I have this line in here because I love the way Sally Kellerman delivers it. By the way, I didn't mention this. Sally Kellerman passed away earlier this year. Rest in peace. What a Did long, she? Yeah, she died. She oh. passed away in February. But what a long, successful career. I mean, and she made her mark. And, you know, for Star Trek fans of a certain age, I guess it was this, but you know, for the rest of the world, there was a lot of other things. Uh, Gary, Gary Lockwood, by the way, Gary Mitchell, still, still kicking. Great. And I think he was in the, uh, large fan film that Snoop Dogg did with all the old Star Trek actors. Mm. <laughs> anyway, from uh, this? just from this episode. Yeah. I mean, he, oh, wow. I mean, Gary Mitchell, how many of Kirk's friends have we met besides Spock and McCoy? I guess zero. Yes. Yeah, so. That comes to mind. I mean, he got more screen time than Kirk's brother who died. So. <laughs> <laughs> and they cut the scene with his nephew. So, mm. <laughs> it's like, okay. Uh, so, Sally Kellerman delivering, don't you understand? A mutated superior man could be also, could also be a wonderful thing. But I think a mutated superior man could also be a wonderful thing. It's what? <laughs> What yeah. attracted me? Like that's again, a like I, I mean, part of it, I think maybe I'm reading too much into it, but I feel like she's just like very horny for him and is like trying to make excuses because she wants to stay on this planet. Eventually, like yeah, at the end, she's like, yeah, I could stay on this planet and bang this guy. I'm with you on that, but isn't that just a great trek trope of being horny for science or, si- yeah. or human human progress? Mm-hmm. <laughs> Uh, Gary Mitchell uh, says to Kirk on Delta Vega, command and compassion is a fool's mixture. I like that. Uh, I also like, you should have killed me when you had the chance, James. <laughs> I feel like we've heard that <laughs> in other things. It's yeah, great. Oh yeah, it's, of course. It's maybe it's always great when it's in something. So, <laughs> and also now it made me think, what's the most random place you could have that hear that in, like an episode of. <laughs> An episode of the Babysitters Club. You wouldn't hear. Yeah. Um, he also says morals are for men, not gods, and I really think that is Gene Roddenberry's mission statement. Mm-hmm. In a, in a way, when he deals with you know, we don't need God; we have each other. Which I really do think, as as a as like a near religious leader as Gene Roddenberry got, that that he was you know he kind of did believe in humanity or the human spirit any other great lines no no i mean there are a lot of great ones but those are the ones that i wrote down that i thought were particularly great yeah and i think it's just a really solid well-written pilot i mean it's so good that sam peoples also was brought back to write the quote-unquote pilot or the first episode of the animated series which is interesting but yeah it's it it's good um, okay, now we go into the Anton Caridian Award for great performance. Best performance, greatest performance. I'm giving it to Shatner. Yeah, it has to be. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. I feel like he kills it in this. Like, yeah. He is Captain Kirk from moment one. Yeah. There's not any part of that performance that couldn't, that he didn't duplicate or, you know, he sounds like, he acts like, behaves like, however you want to call it, Captain Kirk. The yeah, like he's episode. been doing this for mm-hmm. a decade. Yep. And it's like he brought everyone to him. He's like, yeah. you guys figure it out. I'm going to be the captain of the Enterprise. You guys sort mm-hmm. out what you need to do. <laughs> the only thing, this isn't a tweak. What was funny to track about Shatner through the episode is his hairpiece did change. Oh. In the early part, it changes when he goes on the planet is when I noticed. When he's definitely finding Mitchell, that's a different piece than and like the first couples and like the early part of the episode. So I thought that was interesting that uh, the high def is, is uh, you can pick it out much more easily. Uh-huh. So. <laughs> uh, or I'm going to give a runner up to Gary Lockwood. Uh, I think 
one of the thoughts or one of the parts that I really keyed in on was that Mitchell was sort of astonished by his own transformation. And I yeah. think he conveyed that pretty well. Also, and this is very important for me, great cup acting in the sick basin. <laughs> listen, great folks, cup great, listen, folks, <laughs> I'm not saying acting is easy. It's very difficult. Uh, oh, yeah, I can never do it. I'm not saying directing is easy, is easy either. It's very difficult. But there are times when you see something on camera that's wrong and it shouldn't be ignored. And one of those things is if you have a cup that's supposed to have liquid in it, you treat that object differently than if it's empty. Yeah. And 90% of the time now, there's no consideration for it. Some mm -hmm. of our greatest actors, Kristen, have been felled by the mighty cup acting. There is no liquid in that cup that yeah. Gary, that Gary Mitchell orders with with tap water. Which, mm -hmm. if you're a god, okay. On on the <laughs> other hand, maybe a god saying, "Hey, water's important. Drink water." So, yeah, it's not it's not a hundred percent perfect cup acting because he's got to deal with the interaction with Shatner and all that stuff. And Shatner has to basically grab Kirk has to grab it away. And if there was liquid in it, it would spill everywhere. Basically, it's like if you've got liquid in there and it gets on something, then the spot doesn't dry in time for you to you know reset and redo the take. And I get why they don't do it, but that's why you're an actor. You got to act like there's liquid in there. And he did a good job. Yeah. Um... And for those who don't know, like there's no liquid in almost any cup you see on screen ever, no. unless it's a clear cup. I've been watching The Patient with Steve Carell and Donald Gleason, and um, oh no, and, and that empty cup, cup he, acting yeah. all, all around. He well, Donald Gleason is the only one drinking. He's got like a Dunkin' Donuts coffee cup, and there's a part of me that's like I can kind of buy it some of the time because he's like bringing it home from work. And so mm -hmm. it's like, maybe it's, he's drinking the last of it. I can get it. But there are definitely other times where he's like, no, there's supposed to be liquid in there. And like, <laughs> even when you drink, so it's hard because if there's not liquid in there, when you tilt it up to drink it, you're going to tilt it up differently with liquid in there than if mm -hmm. there's not. So if you're, if you're faking drinking, even the way you put it to your lips is going to be different. So it's, I'm not saying it's easy. I'm just saying we notice it. And like I the understand. sound of it when it hits the table. Like, so I watch a lot of soap operas and there's a lot of bad empty cup acting because a lot of times you're working, you're dealing with people who are like brand new actors. And also there's only one take and they don't understand what they're doing. And it's pretty noticeable. Like you'll see someone like try to make their coffee, but they put like five sugars in it <laughs> into the empty cup and like stir it around and there's nothing in there. You just hear the, hear the, the stir against the sugar in the in the side of the cup. Yeah, so you yeah, can't, you can't hit the sides. You got to no. make that whole thing. Yeah, <laughs> but the dedication of putting the sugars in—I I remember it was like so jarring. I was like, "What are you doing? Don't do it." <laughs> That's great. That's great. There's like just a cup. There's just cups full of like other <laughs> that that cup's been used in other episodes. So yeah. it's just got all the sugar the from the yeah. cup all week. Spilled from the scene in the coffee shop. All I week. was amazed. I was a page at CBS. And so working on the soaps, which is basically just sitting in the booth and answering the phone for like, yeah. going, when's my wife going to be home or when's my husband going to be home uh -huh. um, was always great. But I was always astonished how many pages they shoot in a day. And the ones that so have, many. yeah. And the ones that had been doing it for a while, how, how do they memorize all that stuff? But just how like they know what to do. The directors uh -huh. were super great too, because they're like, no, there's no time for excess. We just got to no. do it. Uh, so that was a great efficiency machine. And in a lot of ways, Star Trek, we'll get into that in other episodes, but Star Trek had to sort of do some version of that too. And that, that yeah. was always interesting. So that leads us into the Shatner and I'm going to jump right in for this episode. <laughs> it should be called the Nimoy. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah. In all fairness to Leonard Nimoy, he had not figured out this character yet. And, and the writers hadn't quite either. So you had half an idea of what Spock is. He's an alien who doesn't have, who doesn't have emotions um, or in this episode, they did, they make it clear that he's just, a, he has different emotions or he can like suppress them. So it's interesting that it kind of gets convoluted either in Star Trek itself or through fan reaction. Interpretation is like, he doesn't have emotions like that ever happened. No, he mm -hmm. has them. He just can control them. But this one, you know, it's just the way he was doing it on the cage, which is like checking all stations, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you know, just a lot of shouting and, and weird emotions which he was like i'll do i'll emote like an alien might which is not how a human would and that was the choice he made to get through it 
But it, it all kind of calmed down for that briefing room scene, so it worked. But overall, I mean, he really went for it. Yeah, I just gave it to Gary Mitchell, like, in Toto. Like, I, he made some choices. Uh, I mean, the actor did, but, like, the character, I guess, yeah, like, there's just, like, certain choices made for this character that were just kind of, like, okay, all right. Like, some of them's fine, but, like, for instance, the I already mentioned how he stares into that camera uh, with his creepy space eyes, and then he pretends to die, or he changes his vital signs and quote quote unquote dies and he just like drops his head against the pillow um just like stuff like that i was like okay and then like at the end when when they're just like rolling around william shatner and uh sorry i forget the actor's name sorry are just rolling around in the fight i'm like like there's certain like pieces of that set there's like we're just gonna keep going <laughs> like yeah we're just gonna just go, go with it <laughs> All right, that that's good. They had the those uh were contacts so, and apparently very painful to wear. The, I uh, was thinking, so, I was like, these yeah. have to be so freaking painful, like hard contact lenses back then yeah. that made your eyes look like that. Ugh. To the point where I'm like, did they even wash them? Because it seems oh. like washing things, rinsing things off, was not a thing in the sixties. <laughs> oh God, eye infections. <laughs> exactly. All right, that leads us into our thought experiments. What part of this are they teaching at Starfleet Academy? Um, I just just put ESP. I don't know. Like, just... (laughs) I mean, the whole thing, I would think. (laughs) Like, don't fly... Don't fly to the edge of the galaxy because this is what happened. (laughs) So stay away from the edge of the galaxy. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. All right, I like that one. (laughs) And also be careful because your students might try to catfish you. (laughs) <laughs> like that might not be a course they're teaching but certainly going to be like a memo to the faculty i would think like don't date the lab techs right it's a it's a big galaxy folks there are plenty of options no fraternizing <laughs> between student and instructor that's that's a good one that so that's like what is hr teaching at starfleet academy yeah. yeah that's a good one i like that the training yeah the, the uh the yeah the faculty training now videos. we're gonna, yeah, exactly. <laughs> okay, now this runs into what we ran into with Strange New Worlds. I think how would the predecessor predecessor show captain resolve this conflict? Well, technically, there is no predecessor show captain, but mm-hmm. also technically there is. There is. <laughs> <laughs> so how would Captain Pike have resolved this issue? Well, it depends because the Hunter Pike doesn't seem like he has any friends. And the Anson Mount one seems like he's friends with everybody. Mm-hmm. So, so it kind of whittles it like it makes the emotional conflict a little stranger. Yeah, I put that he may have listened to Spock earlier. About killing him. And well, the other thing is, I have a hard time buying that that relationship's the same. That, you know, Anson no, of Mount, not. yeah, kept Anson Mount Pike does not need. And he doesn't need anyone directed at at him because it would be indistinguishable from all the people naturally flocking to him. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I can buy Shatner as being a little nerdy and shy. That I can definitely do. And I can buy Anson Mount being a little shy, but he's just so big that I just don't think. Is he actually big in real life? I think he is. He he plays on screen as being pretty large. Well, that doesn't mean anything. Well, I have a good eye for this. I have to look this up All right, let's see this. Hold on. Let's do this. Anson Mount height. And it better be like a reputable source. Okay. Well, I'm just using Google. So like, I want to see a picture of him next to Elizabeth Debicki. Okay. So it's, (laughs) that is the good. Who is six foot three. So Anson Mount is allegedly six foot one, but I'm saying more like five foot 11. William Shatner's five, 10. I've stood next to old William Shatner. Um, I didn't even get into all that about my experience, like meeting William Shatner uh, and hearing working with him or working for him and hear, having him say my name. I mean, that was great. It's just like, Brian. Uh, yes. <laughs> Brian. Yes. It was great. Uh, I guess they're kind of the same height, but I think even though Shatner as Kirk carries himself a certain way, I think Anson Mount just kind of a, a nice big presence. I don't know. So how they resolve the conflict. Do you think he would have listened to Spock right away? Maybe not necessarily right away, but um, sooner. I kind of think, 
that he that the whole crew would have tried to get him to see the error of his ways and then it wouldn't have just been uh pike on the surface it would have been like the whole main cast <laughs> oh and they would have been they would be taking him on and then somehow there'd be like whatever his emotional connection is with like laon or something is like causes an emotional breakthrough and he realizes that he has to kill himself that's oh boy that's how i imagine it going <laughs> because that's bleak yeah i would say that that feels more of the modern shows, but I also have a hard time picturing Pike just killing his best friend. Mm. I feel, I see him. Well, I don't think he'd do it himself. I think Spock was more than willing. (laughs) Maybe that would be the episode though. It's like the first and last episode of Star Trek changing worlds where Pike just like Reichenbach falls and Sherlock Holmes, they just jump off the cliff together. (laughs) (laughs) And that's it. All right. So then that leads us to Trek, marry or kill. Oh, okay. Um, I guess I'll say Trek. I mean, I'm, it is I, the horniest episode. Yeah, I got it. Yeah. Is it the horniest episode? Or you said you, you forgot how horny it was. Yeah. Like, I think upon uh, like rewatching, I might change my mind about the horniness, but I think that this is just a taste of what's to come. Yeah, I think that's where I landed too. I would say if someone ever wanted to check it out, you know, go through the Marys first. But this one would probably be high up on, on, uh, on rewatchability. I mean, it's it entertaining. Yeah, that was where no man has gone before. And <laughs> thank you for listening. We'll be back next week with an all new episode. Smell you later. Smell you later. <laughs> Enterprise log, Captain James Kirk commanding. We are leaving that vast cloud of stars and planets which we call our galaxy. Behind us, Earth, Mars, Venus, even our sun are specks of dust. The question, what is out there in the black void beyond? Until now, our mission has been that of space law regulation, contact with Earth colonies, and investigation of alien life. But now, a new task. A probe out into where no man has gone before.